You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. I seek refuge with Allah from Satan, the accursed. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful, peace be upon you. Good morning, and welcome to the breakfast show of the Voice of Islam with uh, Imam Tukit and and myself, Walid Ahmed. And as always, we have a very packed program on the breakfast show this morning. Uh, it is an interactive broadcast. It means that uh, you, our listeners, have the opportunity, if you wish to uh, benefit from it, of joining in any of the discussions that are taking place during the course of the program. All you need to do is pick up the phone and dial 0208-687-7878 and you'll be put through by one of our technicians. Uh, or you can share your thoughts uh, through the more modern method of uh, X and post your uh, thoughts there. Uh, our handle, uh, our X handle is uh, Voice of Islam UK. Um, there will be a variety of different topics that we'll be, uh, uh, we'll be addressing this morning. Uh, some of them are uh, to do with current affairs, which we will deal with in the first half hour, and news uh, on what's going on in the Ahmadiyya Muslim community as well. Uh, but as always, uh, come 7.30, we'll be honing in uh, on two topics that we have selected for special attention, or, de- or should I say for detailed attention uh, this morning. Uh, the first one is uh, uh, regarding uh, the conflict that is causing uh, an intolerable loss of life and shows no signs of abating so far. And that uh, is, uh, of course, the conflict that is going on in the, in the Middle East. And the topic, therefore, we'll be addressing is Israel-Hamas conflict. And we'll be talking about this with Jonathan Taylor, who's a U.S. Navy veteran and former employee of the U.S. Department of Defense and has decided to speak uh, uh, against uh, the toxic relationship that uh, Israel that exists between Israel and the United States. And we'll be discussing the issue of uh, Israel-Hamas conflict with uh, uh, Professor Zachary Foster as well. Uh, Dr. Foster is a historian whose research explores the idea of Palestine as well as the origins of Palestinian identity in the 19th century. And to further our understanding of uh, this particular issue, we hope to be talking to Senior Legal Advisor of Human Rights, uh, Human Rights Watch, uh, uh, Clive Baldwin. So that's going to be between 7.30 and 8.15. Uh, if you're interested in this, then make sure that you remain tuned in during that particular time slot. Uh, moving on for our second topic, uh, we'll be looking at a centenary that is coming up with a mosque, uh, the first mosque built in London. Uh, it was the Fuzzle Mosque, uh, built by the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, with its foundation stone being laid in October 1924 by the then head of the community, uh, Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmed. Uh, this head of the community later launched the uh, Waqf Jadid and Tehriki Jadid schemes. So we'll be considering uh, this topic uh, entitled UK's First Mosque and the Launch of Waqf Jadid and Tehriki Jadid. So if you're wondering what these terms exactly are, then make sure that you are tuned in when we are discussing that, when the full explanation will be given, I'm sure. Um, so... This is something we'll be discussing with two for our own, 
uh, Imam Mujib Mirza in the General Secretary. Uh, he's the General Secretary of the Voice of Islam Radio. And uh, we also hope to be joined by Imam Raza Ahmed uh, to lend their expertise to the understanding of uh, this particular topic. Uh, so I hope you can discern that uh, we really have uh, a packed program this morning. Uh, we will, of course, have the Islamic view to all that we discuss throughout the course of the program, uh, spearheaded by Imam Tukir uh, Ahmed, Tukir Tanmir Khan, who is uh, with me. Assalamu alaikum, uh, Imam Tukir. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Someone actually sent me pictures of you, uh, Brother Ali, yesterday. Okay. So they, they actually had uh, went for a mosque visit. And uh, the, uh, when I say the mosque, I mean the mosque here in Western Europe where we're presenting from. Okay. And they, they then went to the library. Okay. And that's where they met you, the, this big group. Okay. <laughs> and they took a photograph? <laughs> they took several photographs, oh, according to my knowledge. So I've heard right. you've really enlightened them. And oh, I see. You showed them um, this old, very old manuscript of the Holy okay. Quran. So. Shown by an old man. <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they were very much inspired. I see. Okay. Uh, All right. So, um, <laughs> nothing I should fear then. No, no. I'm, I'm just I'm just praising you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. I'm publicizing it on uh, on radio. Oh, that's on national radio. That's good. Okay. <laughs> so, I'll be available for signing autographs later. <laughs> Yours will be complimentary, of course. Yeah. So, Zakla for uh, uh, passing the mic on to me, and uh, I'll start the uh, a new segment up with the uh, the weather, of course, and this is from uh, BBC Weather. So, the forecast for today is that this morning uh, will will uh, dry, will start dry with the dry conditions and sunny spells, and in the afternoon, cloud will gradually build in from the west, yielding s- scattered showers, some falling heavy with the chance of hail. And uh, tonight will turn largely dry, and there will be a mixture of variable cloud and lengthy clear spots throughout the night, and it will be cold uh, with wind. So that is the weather forecast, still very chilly, still very cold, so do take care when you are um, going out, uh, you know, do cover up. Uh, and... Uh, Within this uh, particular news section, our listeners know as well, um, you know, our listeners become accustomed to the fact that we always like to go through some of the news with regards to the MDM Muslim community as well. And uh, one such event which is taking place uh, in Ghana is uh, is the annual convention. And uh, a little bit about this convention is that um, the Ahmadiyya Muslim Mission in Ghana, they reached a centenary, and this was in 2021. However, due to the <clears throat> COVID pandemic that hit, they were not able to hold their annual convention during that time, and the committee decided to hold the 91st Jalsa Salana in 2004. So this is a very historic convention, which is <clears throat> taking place. And... Uh, it it what's what's even interesting is that it will be His Holiness Hazrat Mizam Suramad Mela who will be uh, giving the concluding address from here in the UK, um, which will be broadcast live around the world. Um, so that is uh, something which is very historic, and that will be 
the final concluding session will take place uh, from the Masjid Mubarak Mosque at 4 p.m. Uh, that's when the address will commence. So a little this is on Sunday. This, this is on Saturday. 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 This coming. Saturday. This, this coming tomorrow. Saturday. This coming okay. Saturday. Tomorrow. All right. All right. Um, so it's very historic. Um, because uh, of the centenary as well, and uh, His Holiness is going to be addressing the audience as well, mm-hmm. as uh, usually His Holiness does quite often address um, Qadian India, or maybe sometimes His Holiness used to do uh, address the annual convention in Bangladesh as well. But this is, I think, the first time from what I know His Holiness is addressing uh, the annual convention in Ghana. Um, so a reception will be here, but uh, the members will also be able to listen in Ghana and also elsewhere in the world. Mm. And uh, the beauty of Jalsa Salana is that its inception, uh, it started from the promised Messiah, peace be upon him. Um, and uh, it was during his time, you know, th- this, had, uh, this had started and we know that uh, this this took place in 1891 um, and this was at the newly initiated uh, Jalsa and this continued annually every 24th of December and accordingly in 1892 the members of the community travelled to Gadian, this place in Punjab for the Jalsa Salana and partook the blessed company of the promised Messiah, peace be upon him. And uh, thereafter, following uh, the next year in 1892, uh, the Jalsa Salana became known as the Big Jalsa and among those attending. And uh, this Jalsa was held next to the <coughs> pond in Gardian and the stage uh, was built from mud collections from in and around the pond and the promised Messiah was sat upon the raised platform on which a carpet had been laid and the members of the community were si- seated around him on the floor. And uh, after that, uh, you know, we see that how uh, every year, um, uh, you know, we, we do uh, partake in this annual convention. Every country does. Uh, certainly here in the UK as well, we have the annual convention, which is one of the flagships of the and the Muslim community here in the UK. So yeah, that, that's that's just some more information about that. You can find more information on our website on the weekly Al Hakam, uh, Al yes. Okay, good, excellent. Um, right. Um, as far as other news is concerned, um, there's a lot going on. Um, but uh, I think that uh, one particular. Um, uh, story that is uh, very much uh, applicable to uh, old men <laughs> is is uh, the fear uh, of dementia, the concern of dementia, mm, um, mm. and uh, there there are now um, new drugs being introduced uh, that uh, are hoping to deal with this. But then um, also. Um, uh, there is a greater thought being given to things that uh, will um, increase the chance or the propensity of uh, people who are elderly uh, finding that they have dementia. Um, 
And uh, in a study published uh, recently in the journal uh, Neurology, um, scientists have suggested that those uh, who live in polluted areas have more of the toxic proteins in their brain that are associated with Alzheimer's. So what they're suggesting is that uh, pollution is also a factor in uh, causing, uh, possibly causing, uh, dementia. Uh, the study examined the brains of 224 people who had died at, at an average age of 76 and noted that the plaques of the amyloid protein that are, is believed to cause the disease, um, and when they compared these findings to the um, addresses with the people all from Atlanta, Georgia, had lived, uh, and the particulate air pollution there, uh, there was a clear uh, correlation those who had spent a long time around traffic pollution also had higher levels of alpha amyloid. So it needs to be stressed, and this is what also I was trying to allude to earlier as well, that this does not prove a, clause, a causal link. It doesn't mean that just because you are exposed to higher levels of pollution, you will uh, contract dementia or you will suffer from dementia. But there is certainly uh, a link, uh, it is thought, uh, and uh, it is possible also, it is said, that people who live in polluted area roads are more prone to depositing these. Um, so the association is compelling but not uh, not conclusive. Uh, Ank Hughes from the Emory University in Atlanta said, the findings should be viewed in the light that there is an adverse association between particulate pollution and cognitive decline. He said these results add to the evidence that fine particulate matter from traffic-related air pollution affects the amount of amyloid plaque in the brain. He added that researchers should focus on understanding the mechanism that might uh, explain this. Uh, and so I think the... Um, the investigations of, of these types will, I'm sure, uh, carry on. Um, another story that uh, has featured in most of the main newspapers, um, in the Telegraph, in the Independent, in the Times, is about um, uh, somebody I didn't know before, was uh, a fashion designer called Catherine Hammett. Uh, she is a CBE recipient and she binned her accolade, uh, protesting over the stance the government is taking over Gaza. Uh, in her condemnation of the nation's stance over Gaza, she unceremoniously dumped a CBE uh, medal in the bin. She is a fashion designer and was disgusted over the bloodshed in the Middle East in a short video clip. Uh, and uh, it, it showed her emerging out of her front door and throwing her CBE in the wheelie bin, saying, I'm disgusted uh, to the British for our role in the genocide in Gaza and directing her followers to visit the parliamentary monitoring site. Uh, she added, find your MP and tell them uh, you'll never vote for them again unless they support a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, Hamid's post was uh, made shortly before a chaotic uh, House of Commons session on Wednesday, and um, the um, uh, and and although she points uh, to the horrors in Gaza as the key motivation for her disgust uh, in the clip, a subsequent social media post from the designer shed further light on additional reasons 
behind the frank messaging. Uh, she said that it was because of complicity uh, in genocide of our government, ending aid to Gaza by, by the government, appalling treatment of refugees, mixing up anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, making boycott illegal, uh, poor political leadership, treatment of Julian Assange. So she has a whole list of grievances um, to to match. Uh, it just reminded me of um, one saying of the Holy Prophet. I'm, I'm not supporting or uh, rejecting what she did, but uh, it just reminded me of one saying of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, who said that whoever among you sees evil, let him change it with his hand. If he cannot do so, then with his tongue, if he cannot do so, then with his heart, which is the weakest level of faith. So if you disagree with something that authority is doing, then it is uh, within your rights to, to, not authority, but anyone who is doing something wrong, uh, it is not uh, improper to uh, condemn it um, in, uh, in various ways and various ways. Um, this uh, other story that uh, also caused caught my eye uh, was um, something not favorable to men. Um, in fact, they have to work harder. That's what the headline was. So it's an interesting U.S. study. Uh, it was reported in uh, this week's Times. Um, it showed that men need to spend twice as long exercising as women to get the same long-term benefit, uh, including a reduced risk um, of early death from heart attacks. So what essentially this uh, report was saying is that if you want to stave off uh, ill health, then you need to exercise. But the bad news for men is that they have to exercise twice as much as women in order to get the same benefit. The study involved 412,000 adults aged between 27 and 61, so a wide, I mean, a large sample. Uh, they were followed over two decades, 20 years. And uh, the study found that both sexes could usually cut the risk of an early death by exercising. But women get more out of each minute. All types of activity was, uh, were observed, including running, cycling, strength uh, training, uh, and again, were, fu- were found to boost women's long-term health more than uh, that of men for a set amount of time being allocated to, to exercise. Exercise led to a 24, 4%, <laughs> 24% reduced risk of early death of any cause in women, compared with 15% reduction in death for men, uh, uh, death risk for men. The study was published in the Journal of American College of Cardiology. It declared that men needed to spend twice as long working out each week to obtain the same benefits as women, and to cut the risk of dying by 18%, for instance, men would have to complete five hours a week of moderate aerobic exercise, such as brisk walk or swimming. Women would need to do just two and a half hours, half an hour, half of what men would have to do. So why the disparity? It doesn't seem fair, does it? Um, well, researchers believe the findings are partly explained by sex differences in anatomy and physiology. Men have bigger hearts and lungs and higher muscle mass, meaning that exercise using force and power comes naturally or more naturally to them. 
Therefore, women's bodies, including their respiratory and cardiovascular systems, may need to adapt more to conduct the same movement. So they in turn recap or they in turn reap greater health benefits um, from exercise. The report's co-author, Dr. Susan Cheng, said, we hope this study will help everyone, especially women, to understand they are poised to gain tremendous benefits from exercise. It is an incredibly powerful way to live healthier and longer. Women, on average, tend to exercise less than men, and hopefully these findings will inspire more women to add extra movement to their lives. And she added, even a limited amount of regular exercise can provide a major benefit, and it turns out... This is especially true for women. Taking some regular time out for exercise, even if it's just 30, uh, 30 minutes of vigorous exercise a few times a week, can offer a lot more gain than they may realize. Bit of a downer, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> we have to work twice as harder to get the same benefit from exercise as women. Eh? <laughs> Where is equality gone? <laughs> where's, where's equality? I think na- nature needs um, need, needs a talking to. <laughs> anyway, um, is there any any other news? I mean, there, there is one um, piece of news that we <laughs> well, I was trying to avoid, but uh, might as well mention it. We've got some time. It's about um, what is happening in uh, what happened in the House of Commons mm. on on Wednesday. It was quite a um, uh, well, it was quite interesting what was going on. Um, chaotic scenes in the House of Commons uh, when the votes uh, calling for a ceasefire in Gaza descended into wranglings between the political parties and serious accusations against the Speaker of the House. Uh, the background was that uh, opposition parties are supposed to have 20 opportunities to have uh, their motions discussed, uh, their proposals, if you like, uh, debated in Parliament. And of these 20 uh, opportunities, three were allocated to the uh, third largest party in Westminster. This is the SNP. They filed a motion calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. The government opposed it and uh, filed an amendment uh, seeking a humanitarian pause instead. Now, what appears to have been more unusual and against parliamentary convention was when the Speaker allowed an additional amendment from the Labour Party, which also called for an immediate uh, ceasefire. There was a difference between the Labour Party's uh, amendment and what the SNP were proposing, in that the SNP were uh, also uh, condemning the collective punishments of Palestinians, and the SNP were not asking for the laying down of arms like the Labour Party amendment was. The Speaker defended his position, saying that he allowed the Labour motion because he was concerned about the security of all members, security of members, their families, and the people that are involved. It appears he was worried about the public reaction against Labour MPs if they had not supported the SNP motion and hence allowed the Labour motion to be permitted for debate. It meant that the SNP motion or the SNP proposal was not going to be discussed at all. And this is what was uh, so damning. Uh, so, And what, what caused the uproar? The Conservatives walked out, taking the amendment with them. The SNP didn't want to participate, and the Labour motion was carried. 
the Speaker, uh, Lindsay Hoyle, um, appeared before the House uh, feeling compelled to apologize, but carrying little weight uh, with the, the SNP. Uh, their leader uh, said the uh, reality is, and I, this is a quote from what he said, the reality is that you were warned by the clerks of the House that your decision could lead to the SNP not having a vote on our very own Opposition Day. As a result, we have seen the SNP Opposition Day turn into a Labour Party Opposition Day. And he added, I'm afraid that, uh, uh, treat that this is treating myself and my colleagues in the Scottish National Party with complete and utter contempt. I will take significant convincing that your position is not now intolerable. Uh, one Conservative um, uh, backbencher uh, suggested a motion of no confidence in the Speaker be signed. 33 MPs obliged on the night, and the number has risen to over 60, I'm told. Uh, meanwhile, the carnage in Gaza continues, often at uh, a rate of over 200 civilians a day being killed, day in, day out, many women and children. Whatever side we are on, uh, we should draw benefit from these words of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, who said that, help your brother, whether he is an oppressor or he is an oppressed one. People asked, O Messenger of Allah, it is all right to help him if he is oppressed, but how should we help him if he is an oppressor? The Prophet replied, by preventing him from oppressing others. So I think there is great wisdom in those words. Um, if those words were heeded, I'm sure many of the um, uh, complexities uh, and the heartaches and agonizing over what to do and what to say would be resolved. Well, we're uh, approaching 7.30 and it's time, I think, uh, to look at uh, the first of our main stories. It's to do with uh, what we were discussing happened in the House of Commons, I suppose, uh, at least in part. Uh, it is regarding the Israel-Hamas conflict and the humanitarian crisis in in Gaza. So we hope to be speaking to John Taylor, Jonathan Taylor in a few uh, seconds' time. Uh, Jonathan Taylor is a U.S. Navy veteran and former employee of the United States Department of Defense. Um, he is um, uh, a disabled veteran who decided to speak out about the toxic relationship between Israel and uh, the United States. Uh, yes, uh, I, I believe we are joined by um, our first guest. Uh, good morning to you, Jonathan Taylor. Uh, can you hear us clearly? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? You sound uh, great. Fantastic, and thank you for joining us this morning, uh, especially from you joining from USA, where it's uh, uh, quite early. Um, so, yeah, we just wanted to uh, speak about the whole situation there. But firstly, before we do explore this, we wanted to ask you, can you tell us a bit about your own personal experience of becoming a U.S. veteran and how did you join Absolutely. Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. And uh, um, I'm just so glad to be here. And uh, <clears throat> the reason that I joined the Navy was, uh, I, it's actually 
funny because I, I had an extremely negative opinion about the military before I joined. I, um, before I joined the military, I, I played in bands uh, like punk rock, hardcore bands, mm. and uh, I just uh, did not have a, a, a favorable opinion about the military. But my, jo- my brother had joined the Marines, and uh, so I had done a lot of studying. Um, I was a, I watched Democracy Now. I watched a lot of Amy, Amy Goodman, and uh, was turned on to uh, Noam Chomsky, um, which uh, was my first introduction to the injustice, the injustices that were happening in Palestine. And uh, even though I was outspoken about the war um, before I joined the military, I got a lot of pushback because I. I wasn't a veteran, and people kind of gave me the the attitude that I didn't have a right to speak about the issues. Um, but when my first son was born, I uh, I had the responsibility to provide for my family, and uh, my brother, who was a Marine, convinced me that uh, if I joined the military, they would make sure that I could feed my family. Um, and they would make sure that I had a roof over my head, and I figured it would be better for me to go be over there um, making rational decisions than uh, some young kid who uh, maybe uh, wasn't as well informed about the situation than I was. So um, ultimately, ultimately, I did join to pay for my education and to provide for my family because I, I really didn't have any other options at that point. No, great. Thank you. Thank you for that. And uh, Jonathan, how has your experience been, especially as uh, the U.S., and how have you changed your perspective of the U.S. foreign relations, particularly with uh, what is happening in the Middle East and it being an occupying force? Well, uh, in the United States, there is so much brainwashing that happens uh just in the schools, in the churches, in the entertainment industry, mm. uh, in the military, in the and the news, uh, so that we fear, misunderstand, and disconnect from our Arab and Muslim brothers and sisters. Um, but what has changed for me over time is that it's not enough just to be conscious of what's going on. It's that uh, we must use our voices to to actually speak out against the injustice in the world if uh, we want to change the direction of foreign policy. And we can't let history just happen around us. We need to be a part of history and actually enact change for it to happen. No, absolutely. And Jonathan, are you actively pro-Palestinian? And can you tell us more about this choice that why... Uh, you have decided to uh, become a, a pro-Palestinian. Yes. So um, when I was younger, um, it started out as, uh, you know, my grandfather was a World War II veteran who uh, who helped liberate the concentration camps, and uh, he had very strong values, and uh, he taught me how to recognize a genocide when it happened. He felt like that was very important because he saw it happen um, with the Nazis. And uh, 
he he said that people didn't recognize it as it was happening. Um, people were just indifferent to the things that were going on. Um, so he thought that it was important that he teach me how to recognize those those signs. Um, so um, then later on, after I joined the military, um, after completing my first year of initial military training, mm. I actually met a, a USS Liberty survivor, uh, one of the sailors that was on board that ship. And uh, he told me with tears running down his cheeks about Israel's attack on that ship where 34 U.S. sailors died and 171 were wounded um, after Israel had attacked, trying to draw the U.S. into war um, alongside Israel against Egypt in the Six-Day War. Um, but he, he had told me, you know, never to trust the U.S. government and never to trust Israel, that uh, even though, uh, you know, I had just started my journey with the military, um, we were just tools and that we could be sacrificed and, uh, um, no, you know, we were just, yeah. we were really just pawns. No, thank, thank you for that and uh, sharing your own personal experience being in the military. Um, Jonathan, I, I just have one more, one more question from my side and then I'll pass the mic on to our host, uh, Brother Valid. I, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned earlier that you've seen that within the Western world, especially with when it comes to the news as well, there is a very much biased opinion when it comes to the news and one particular agenda is given rather than the whole picture itself. Um, why do you think that is? Well, I uh, I think it's because there is a common goal between um, between the the news organizations. Um, there's there's really a uniparty here in the United States. Whether you're Democrat or Republican, there is uh, you know mm. there's a lot of basically all of the politicians are paid for by. APAC, the uh, American-Israel Political Action Committee, and uh, they, uh, you know, Israel has so much influence over the media and uh, the politicians and everything that they can, uh, they literally just, it just seeps into the fabric of every single aspect of our, of our lives. Mm. Thank you for that. Yes, uh, Jonathan, um, yeah, good morning. Um, you mentioned earlier about uh, how your father was able to explain to you uh, the way to recognize uh, genocide um, or atrocity. Um, how did it make you feel when uh, a U.S. spokesperson said that the USA believes the allegations of genocide to be unfounded in this instance? Uh, when it came to Gaza? Well, by that point, I had already had a very healthy distrust for the U.S. government, but uh, to hear him say that those allegations, <clears throat> excuse me, were completely unfounded, um, just 
makes you wonder if he's even living in the same reality as the rest of us. Um, we've seen the cell phone videos and just constant flow of information coming out of Gaza for the last, you know, two decades since we've been able to record on handheld devices. And uh, we we know what's happening. There's no there's no way to hide it anymore. And uh, we really don't need any government officials to tell us anything about what's happening because we already know at this point. Um, do you find that the majority of the American public share your view in that respect? I wish I could say that I did, but uh, the region that I live in, it seems that uh, a lot of people are plagued with indifference. And why is that so? If so much information is flowing to the contrary, why is it that uh, the wider public is not moved in the same way as you are? I believe it has a lot to do with the religious connection that people have to Israel. They believe that uh, Israel has a... Um, has a role to play in the second coming of Christ and um, that somehow they are going to usher in the second coming of Christ. And I I feel like that's a, a dangerous and false belief to hold. And uh, I, you know, one of my goals is to try to wake people up to the fact that uh, you cannot usher in the second coming of Christ with the genocide. Mm. Uh, and what about um, funding? I mean, how does it make you feel that so much of the uh, U.S. tax dollars are being utilized to fund foreign wars and not enough is being done for U.S. citizens? I think it's proof that the structure of the United States government is completely flawed. And the fact that United States citizens don't um, seem to even have a choice on where our tax dollars go anymore is, uh, you know, it's evidence of that. We just we we have a broken system, and our our politicians are corrupt. But uh, like I said before, this is just, it just means that we need to get out in the streets and we need to raise awareness and we need to take action. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you have a positive hope for the future? Or do you think that it's going to get worse before it gets better? I, I believe that it's going to get worse before it gets better, but I, uh, I, I do believe in uh, in this movement. I believe that uh, we are taking the right steps. I believe there's a lot of really great people, Jewish people included, mm. that are uh, taking you know their own time out of out of their days, fighting every single day to try to raise awareness and and get people involved. and And I do feel like it's working. I do feel like we're making an impact. Okay. Now, let's hope there is a positive outcome, a uh, positive future uh, for the United States. Um, uh, I wish you all the best. Thanks very much for coming on. 
uh, especially this early in the morning hey, thank for you. Thank you so much for yeah. having me. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Right, uh, where are we going from here then, Mantuki? I think we're just going to be looking more into this uh, speci- uh, this uh, uh, segment into um, you know what's been some of the economic exploitation which has uh, taken place. Um, so we're just going to be looking at that, and uh, after that, we will be getting our next guest on. And uh, you know, the situation is that Gaza right now it faces economic exploitation due to various factors including the ongoing occupation and stringent restrictions on movement and trade and these factors they hinder gaza's economic development and exacerbate its ex- economic challenges and the withholding of tax revenues by israel which are essential for the functioning of the palestinian authority contributes to the economic difficulties in Gaza and this withholding derives uh, deprives Gaza of the vital resources needed for essential services and development initiate initiatives the economic exploitation in Gaza this has uh, resulted in a severe humanitarian crisis and is characterized by widespread poverty unemployment and food insecurity and the lack of basic necessities such as food water and healthcare they for- further correspond to the suffering of gaza's uh, population i mean we know uh, from humanity first uh, they, they you know they they are uh, they they have been at the forefront and they have been uh, letting our voice of islam listeners know as well with the current situation in uh, in uh, in in gaza and you know i remember the dr aziz who is the chairman of humanity first in the uk he's, he said that you know humanitarian aid there is like a droplet in the ocean you know there there's so much restrictions uh within Gaza itself for these trucks to go in for a lot of the aid to go in that you know they they can't help everyone and we know from different videos as well that are coming that uh, the situation for a lot of the Gazans there are very difficult um but uh, I do believe I have been informed by my tech team as well we we do have a uh, a uh, a recording which was done earlier um and this was from uh Zachary Foster who is professor uh from uh, from who, who is a historian and who his research explores the idea of Palestine as well as the origins of Palestinian identity in the 19th century and uh, Zach is a senior law fellow at the Rutgers Center for Security Race and and Rights Uh, so we did manage to interview him as well about this whole situation so let's listen peace and blessings of Allah be upon you uh, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah how's everything dr foster how are you i'm okay thanks um so the first question that i would pose to you uh, would be that could you tell us a little bit about your journey growing up um as a jew and going to israel um yeah if you just tell us a little bit about um little a little bit about that yeah so i grew up in a jewish household in a jewish community in Detroit, Michigan in the United States and and I I grew up going to school synagogues and Jewish schools and and Jewish youth groups and all of those 
Jewish institutions were also Zionist institutions, right? So, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> and then in high school, traveled to to Israel with my Jewish youth group, and I would describe it as a, a kind of Hasbara 101, a sort of mm-hmm. a, a kind of a pro-Israel propaganda trip, which in which you're taken from Poland, mm-hmm. where you're taught about the Holocaust and Jewish suffering. After and after a week of touring around the concentration camps, you're brought directly to Israel, mm-hmm. where you're taught that this is the solution to 2,000 years of Jewish persecution, mm-hmm. and it's a very powerful uh, narrative. Yeah. And I, you know, it, 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 mo- most Jews that come out of the, uh, these institutions and youth groups and Israel trips become very, very pro-Israel, yeah. and then go on to positions of influence and power, and um, and that's why you know. Congress is uh, just voted to send Israel another eleven billion dollars to mm-hmm. carry out genocidal acts in Gaza. Yeah. So, um, anyways, uh, that 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 was uh, that was very much a part of my upbringing. Oh, that's that's uh, thank you so much for that. Um, so, how is it that you became pro-Palestinian then after seeing all this? Well, it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. Uh, I think for me, the first turning point was having spent time in Israel-Palestine, meeting Palestinians, learning Arabic. Mm. Um, and and really, uh, I think that the, the, those personal experiences, uh, again, not political, but personal, interpersonal, um, changed my view about Palestinians, right? I, I was under the false assumption that Palestinians were violent and terrorists and just wanted to push the Jews into the sea. But actually, when you, actually, when you meet Palestinians and learn that um, that's not what they want, that yeah. uh, actually they just want to live normal lives and uh, they want political rights like everyone else in the world and... Yeah. You know, they want freedom of movement like everyone else in the world. And they don't have those things because of uh, Israeli occupation and because of uh, the 700 checkpoints erected preventing freedom of movement in Palestine. Yeah. Uh, be- because the state is um, it, it, it is very much uh, a state whose purpose is to serve Jews, to mm-hmm. guarantee Jewish safety, Jewish security, Jewish prosperity. It has, mm-hmm. The state has nothing to do with Palestinians, uh, even though – right. They, uh, you know, there's seven, eight million of them living under Israeli control. Yeah. So I think that was one very important uh, a turning point for me was, uh, again, like I said, meeting Palestinians, but also learning the history. Yeah. I think the more you study about the history of Zionism, uh, the more horrified you become. Yeah. Because Zionist, uh, the Zionist project <clears throat> uh, w- was not a project of liberation. It was a project of settler colonialism yeah. in which the goal was to transform a country that was 80, 90 percent non-Jewish. Yeah. Um, the goal is to transform that country into a Jewish country. And the mm. way you do that is, <clears throat> is, is first by buying up land, uh, pushing Palestinians off that land. Um, and then ultimately, in order to take control, you need a state. And once you have a state, now you have a military and you have <clears throat> uh, the ability to actually expel Palestinians by force from mm. their towns, villages, and homes. Mm. And that's exactly what happened in 48. Yeah. Um, and then after the end of the war... You had tens of thousands of Palestinians trying to return to their homes after the war. And the two years after the war, the Israeli military uh, embraced a shoot-to-kill order, right? Anyone seeking to return to their homes, Hmm. uh, as refugees so often do at the end of a war, was uh, was shot and killed. And and so you had a thousand defenseless unarmed Palestinians slaughtered in the the two years after the end of the war. Hmm. Um, So, you know, you learn that history, and I think you arrive at the conclusion that Zionism was a... A political project mm-hmm. um, that involved a tremendous amount of violence, yeah. and I just didn't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, th- th- thank you so much for shedding some light on that. Um, you you've already, you've already mentioned regarding some of the propaganda that you were exposed to, but what other types of false propaganda were you um, subjugated to, and does it still exist? Well, look, the basic I- idea uh, I think that you come away with if you grow up in these uh, Jewish communities with all of this propaganda is that you basically don't know anything about Palestinians or Palestinian history or Palestinian culture. Hmm. The Palestinians don't exist. They're not part of the curriculum. You don't talk about them. Uh, the only times they come up is whenever you're talking about terrorism. Um, they're basically a, a people who are hell-bent on your destruction. They, they wake up every morning thinking to themselves, how are we going to put the Jews into the sea today? That is basically the impression you would get if you grow up in these Jewish communities, mm-hmm. certainly the one I grew up in. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a total dehumanization. First of all, it's you don't know anything. You're not taught the history or the culture. Um, so you don't know what these uh, uh, Palestinians are like. You've never met any Palestinians. You don't speak a word of Arabic. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're ignorant. Um, uh, but, but I think at a certain point, the deeper you get into the Hasbara world, the more mm. you learn. Actually, you start to learn things, mm. but what you learn is all fiction, right? You learn that, um, uh, and these are all, like, I would say points of propaganda, none of which are true, but let me just state them. You would learn that, actually, there were, no, there were very few Palestinians in Palestine. They all came from the surrounding countries. Mm. They came from Egypt, they came from Syria. Because of the Zionist ingenuity and Zionist investment in Palestine, mm. they were all these Arabs from other countries were attracted to Palestine, right? So that's why there are so many Palestinians in Palestine. So mm. that's a myth that you would hear. You would hear the Palestinians never called themselves Palestinians in the first place, right? They were just Arabs, or maybe they called themselves Syrians, or maybe even Southern Syrians. Mm. But they, were never, they never had a Palestinian identity. You would also learn that myth. Mm. You would learn that the place was never called Palestine in history, that they basically always called it uh, Syria or something else, but never they didn't have a distinctly Palestinian uh, identity in the sense that they didn't even call the place Palestine. Hmm. Um, so you would learn all, and then, of course, you would learn the myths about how, you know, the, Air, the Palestinians, quote, never miss an opportunity uh, to miss an opportunity, that they have always rejected peace that all they want, their only goal is to destroy Israel. But so you would learn all of these types of myths as well. Hmm. Oh, thank, thank you so much for that. Thank you. Um, would you say the way that Israel is acting, do you think it's detrimental not just to Palestine, but also to Jews and also Israel itself? Well, uh, every couple of years, Israel goes on a killing rampage in Gaza. Mm-hmm. In 2008, they killed more than 1,000 Palestinians. And... Uh, you saw a rise, a spike yeah. in anti-Semitic incidents around the time of that war mm-hmm. um, in the UK, in France, in the United States. The same thing happened in 2014 when Israel killed uh, more than 1,400 Palestinian civilians um, targeting residential neighborhoods. Um, and, and again, same thing happened. You saw a spike in anti-Semitic incidents in Europe and the United States. Mm-hmm. Same thing happened in 2021. And the same thing is happening now. Yeah. Whenever Israel goes on these killing rampages, slaughtering hundreds, if not thousands, of innocent Palestinians, mm-hmm. in the name of protecting Jews, right? In the name of defending the Jewish state, yeah. uh, in the name of serving Jewish interests, well, guess what happens to Jews around the world? They pay the consequences. Um, and, and that's not to justify those anti-Semitic incidents. I reject anti-Semitism as a Jew who has personally faced anti-Semitism. Uh, it's horrifying, and I've seen it firsthand with my own two eyes. Hmm. Make no mistake. 
yeah. uh, anti-Semitism is, uh, uh, is, is, is evil, just like uh, Islamophobia is evil, just like racism is evil, just like transphobia is evil. Yeah. But, but, but let's, let's also make no mistake that this is a direct consequence of the fact that Israel goes on killing rampages and Israel also claims to represent Jews around the world. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Uh, my final well, few kind of questions, um, they're kind of all linked together, um, is that um, what has been your experience with Muslims? Uh, do you think there is peace? Pos- uh, do you think there's um, a possibility of peace? And uh, what are some of the solutions that you would pose? Uh, look, Jews and Muslims um, get along great. Inside, you know, in the United States, in Europe, well, maybe not so great, but, um, you know, obviously Muslims and Jews live, um, you know, in communities side by side around the world, and they have done been doing so for thousands of years. Yeah. Um, you know, the Jewish faith and the uh, uh, Muslim faith actually, you know, have a lot in common. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I would say historically, and I don't, I don't think you'd find very many historians who would disagree with this, but historically, Jews have fared much better under Muslim rule than under Christian rule. Yep. I mean, that's obviously a, a very general point. Um, but again, when speaking in extreme generalities, you know, Islam has been a much better home for Jews than Christendom. Yep. Uh, so, uh, look, yes, of course, peace is possible. Um, it requires, ultimately, that uh, Israelis and Palestinians sit down at a negotiating table as equals. Mm. And, and that has never happened, right? And, and during Oslo... Israel was both the a party to the Oslo Accords, but it also was the enforcer of the Oslo Accords. Yeah. It would be like playing a football match in which your opponents are also the referees. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, and by the way, they get to change the rules as, you know, as the game pro- proceeds onwards. Yeah. Right? So it's, 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 it's a whole other layer of they're in control of everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether or not they uh, um, live up to their end of the agreement is up to them. And if they decide to change the rules of the engagement along the way, as Bibi Netanyahu did in 1999 when he said, Israel and Israel alone gets to determine what a military facility is. Mm-hmm. And so when he defines a military facility in 1998-99 as the entire Jordan Valley, as 10% of the entire West Bank, 15-20% of the entire West Bank, yeah. right? Well, that he's, he's fundamentally deciding how the game ought to be played, and it ought to be played according to Israel's rules where Israel can basically define anything any way it likes. Yeah. So that you can't, in, in a world where Israel is not an equal partner at the negotiating table, but it is the, the one making the rules of the game and changing the rules of engagement along the way, well, that's, you're never going to come to a, a, peace, a, a, you know, a, a peace agreement under such circumstances. So I think ultimately, I can't tell you what peace ultimately looks like, but what yeah. I can tell you, is that Palestinians and Israelis need to have an equal seat at the table. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you so much for that, uh, Dr. Foster. You know, I really appreciate you joining us, um, taking some time out to answer our questions. So I really appreciate that. Um, thank you so much once again. Um, and I hope you have a great day. Thank you so much. May peace and blessings be upon you. Thank so much. Thank you. Thank you. alaikum. Same to you. Right, uh, that was uh, Dr. Zachary Foster, who was talking to us earlier. He's a senior fellow, a senior law fellow at the Rutgers Center for Security, Race and Rights 
He holds an MA in Arab Studies from Georgetown University and a PhD in Near Eastern Studies from Princeton University. He's uh, the founder of the Digital Archive Palestinian Nexus and writes a newsletter called Palestine in Your Inbox. Uh, Zach is a frequent contributor to international media outlets, including uh, the Israeli uh, newspaper Haaretz and TRT, the national public broadcaster of Turkey. So it was a very welcome uh, addition uh, to us to have him on our show. Um, that uh, for the time being, uh, we have to uh, come to a short interlude. Uh, after that, there will be news, and then uh, we will resume our discussion further afterwards about the Israel-Hamas conflict, the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Peace be upon you. Good morning. Welcome back to The Breakfast Show at The Voice of Islam with Imam Toki Tanwi Khan and myself, Munid Ahmed. Uh, earlier uh, during this program, we were looking at uh, this particular issue, Islam, is Israel-Hamas conflict and the humanitarian crisis, uh, crisis in Gaza in particular. Uh, we spoke to a couple of experts uh, before. Um, we hope to be joined uh, by a senior legal advisor of Human Rights Watch, uh, Clive uh, Baldwin, uh, soon. Um, but uh, while we wait, um, you were mentioning something about um, the uh, impact of um, the uh, the conflict on, on the population, on the Palestinians. Yes, uh, I mean, I, we were, I was mentioning earlier that we've spoken to uh, different charities as well, such as Humanity First, and they have been telling us, you know, the the whole situation in in Gaza, and that you know, there's so much restrictions that very little aid can be um, given those to those individuals. So we have aid, a lot of aid, but we can't take it yeah, through. Yeah, yeah, because of the uh-huh. of the restrictions, uh-huh. um, because the whole Gaza, the Strip, is you know, it, it's all. Uh, there's there's border around it, so uh-huh. just going in there is such a uh, such a task itself. Okay. Uh, but I, I believe we are joined by our first guest. Um, so Brother oh. hand the mic oh, thank to you. you. Oh, uh, Mr. Clive Baldwin is with us. Uh, um, thank you very much for joining uh, us on the breakfast show, uh, Clive. Good morning. Good morning. Um, now you're you're a senior legal advisor for Human Rights Watch. What is Human Rights Watch? So Human Rights Watch is a global organization and we so we work around the world and what we do is document um, what appear to be violations of human rights, publish them um, and engage in advocacy to try to get the abuses to end. And what we base our work on is international law that sets out what are human rights violations and what are international crimes, like war crimes and crimes against humanity. So those are the sort of findings we say. Is this a violation of the right to life? Is this a war crime? Is this a crime against humanity? So so how how precisely are human rights defined then? Um, So there's a set of treaties um, that virtually all states in the world, in fact all states in the world, have signed up to them in different ways. One of the starting points was 
the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, which a group of people, in fact a um, Lebanese lawyer called uh, Charles Malik, um, did a lot of the drafting of this in the 1948. Um, and that just sets out that every individual um, is entitled to certain rights, like the right to life, like um, freedom of speech, and those have um, gone on to be developed into some treaties. Um, in the UK and in Europe, we hear about the European Convention on Human Rights. There's also an African Convention on Human and People's Rights, uh, Inter-American, across the Americas um, Treaty, um, and treaties on civil rights, political rights for people, economic rights, social rights, um, and cultural rights. Um, so you use this as a basis for working out where uh, these uh, rights have been um, been violated. Is that right? Yes. So okay. sorry. Go ahead. Go so 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 once you once you collect the evidence, uh, if there is a violation, um, who do you give it to? Who decides whether? there is substance in, in, in a violation or not, in your findings or not? So once we made this determination, we published reports saying this. Um, for example, three years ago, we published a long report setting out why all the evidence we strongly believe shows that Israel's committing the crime of several crimes, but the crimes of apartheid and racial persecution against Palestinians. What happens then is to put pressure on anyone, put pressure on those carrying out the atrocities, um, helping those who are experiencing the atrocities. Uh, and sometimes they, it's going to court. So there are courts like the European Court of Human Rights, which can make a ruling against states. And if it's a crime, is trying to get accountability, in fact, trying to get these crimes investigated by those who do investigations by police forces and then prosecuted by prosecutors. Um, mostly in countries themselves, so in, if the crimes are taking place there. The worst crimes are crimes we look at, which are considered international crimes that all states should be caring about, like crimes against humanity, they're crimes against all of humanity. Um, those can be investigated in any country that is allowing, allows its prosecutors to do so. Um, so South Africa has been sometimes seeking to arrest people visiting who are suspected of crimes against humanity. And there is, for the last 20 years, an international criminal court in The Hague which can prosecute um, war crimes, crimes against humanity, in states which have signed up to it, but not every state in the world has. Mm. Uh, one more question from me before I pass the mic on to my colleague. But uh, what are, does anybody um, take notice of, uh, of your reports? Um, yes, yeah, our reports get a, a lot of attention. Um, so sometimes we, similar, I mean, a very similar organization to Human Rights Watch is Amnesty International, which I think a lot of people have heard of. Mm. But it's uh, some, a lot of governments get angry with our reports, which also shows um, what, that, what it means. Um, but it's about, about putting pressure on people. Say one report, which we did, which I myself wrote last year, was about the UK 
and the United States' treatment of a people called the Chagossian people, who come from an island in the Indian Ocean. Um, a and this, we say this is a colonial crime because 50 years ago, the UK and US deported the entire population from their homeland so the United States could build a military base on an island called Diego Garcia. We put a report and we said this is forced displacement, this is racial persecution, these are African people. Um, and again, the governments were not happy, but in the end, the United States has said, well, it regrets now what happened because it had been exposed um, in great detail what they had done. And the UK is now negotiating with the governments of Mauritius over the future of these islands and has said um, that we hope they're not going back on it, that the resettlement of the people is on the agenda. But it's a matter of continuous pressure. And sometimes this pressure has to keep going for years and years and years. And it's um, also putting pressure on other governments not to assist governments in their atrocities, not to supply weapons, for example. Mm. So naming and shaming has an effect, has an impact. Yes. Right, okay. Uh, over to, to you. Uh, good morning, uh, Clive. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning. Um, I had a question uh, with regards to the whole uh, war crime in uh, Israel and Palestine. I mean, you mentioned the International Criminal Court, you know, and they predominantly they decide, uh, you know, with when it comes to these war crimes as well. Uh, but what we see is that uh, when this war broke out between Palestine and Israel, it took a very long time for it to be even declared a war crime in the first place. Um, and, and I wanted to ask you specifically that why do you think that was that? Why, why was there such a delay in uh, the International Criminal Court in deciding that, you know what, this act which, is, which has been done by Israel, that, that is a war crime? Yeah, it's um, a thing to explain this, and uh, thank you for the question there, is that the International Criminal Court has actually been investigating the situation in Palestine since 2021. The reason for that is, as I said, states have to join this court, mm. and that gives a court jurisdiction authority. Palestine joined it um, in was, um, a few years ago, I think it was 2014, Israel like, signed the treaty and then tried to get out of it and unsign it. So Israel hasn't joined the court. But that still means that by Palestine joining, eventually the judges had to rule what that meant. And they said it means that the court does have jurisdiction only any war crimes, crimes against humanity committed in the territory of Palestine or um, of the state of Palestine, but or, uh, or from the territory of the state of Palestine. Um, so it and, they, and it has this jurisdiction going back to 2014. Um, so we've been saying that, and others have been saying that, then the there's a prosecutor that International Criminal Court, and his predecessor and he himself have had this investigation for three years. Um, so he, and now since, and we've said that includes war crimes. It can be committed by anybody, by Israel, mm. by Hamas, by Islamic Jihad, yeah. including... And war crimes include um, when you directly um, deliberately target civilians. That's one war crime. Um, so it's it, has been saying, why is this taking so long? Um, in any case, because it's been looking in the past. We also say that 
prosecutors should be looking, examining and prosecuting the crimes of apartheid, of racial persecution as well by Israel. Um, and that's not just in Gaza and the West Bank and East Jerusalem as well. And in this particular hostilities, uh, the prosecutor eventually has said that he, these, these crimes come within his jurisdiction, he's examining them. Uh, <clears throat> I don't think he, has, he hasn't stated that any are war crimes yet, but that's for him to say in a, when he announces who is being investigated, in fact, who he may search. Um, what us and others have said is for anybody to say that there's some like individual incidents you have to really investigate to know whether it's a war crime. Mm. Or you can say if civilians are killed, you have to look at what the attack was. Was it targeting civilians? Was it more of a not caring about civilians or even a, mm. an accidental? But there's some war crimes we know that have said are very clear, like um, the cutting, when Israel said it was cutting off all food, water, electricity, that's collective punishment. And collective punishment of a people is a war crime. Um, it's, there's no justification for punishing the entire people. Um, not, another war crime we said wa was Israel using starvation as a weapon of war. That's a war crime. Um, and that we've documented, the Human Rights Watch has documented in detail. As others, we're raising concerns about, like, the, um, the there's, you know, forced displacement. If the almost the entire population of Gaza is being displaced, if it's clear that Israel is refusing to allow them to return back, for example, it's not, that would be one clear indication that this is a deliberate forced displacement, which will be a war crime. In fact, on that scale would be a crime against humanity. Um, so that is why. But it's, it's a question for anyone to say to the prosecuting international criminal court. Um, now, you do have to do a proper investigation in order to be able to prosecute anyone. Mm. But, at some point, the evidence should be there. It's not just what the war crimes have taken place, it's who is responsible for them. Great, uh, Clive uh, Bowen. Thank you so much for uh, joining us this morning and uh, sharing your expertise um, uh, on the subject. Uh, unfortunately, this is all we do have time for, but uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So that was uh, Clive Baldwin, uh, Senior Legal Advisor for Human Rights Watch. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude this uh, particular segment. We do hope that you've uh, enjoyed it. And uh, now, uh, swiftly moving on to our next topic, and this is a very, very interesting topic. And this is about the London's first mosque. And this was no other than the Fuzzle Mosque itself. And uh, very, very different, two very different topics, no? Yes, um, certainly. So the, the Fuzzle Mosque, um, also known as the, the, the London Mosque, so this was actually opened in 1926. And the, this was the international headquarters of the Amdiya Muslim community. And it, it's, it was listed back in 2018 uh, at grade by the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport for the Mosque's Historic, Agricultural and, and uh, Cultural Importance. And the Fuzzle Mosque on Gressenhall Road, Southfield, was the first purpose-built mosque in London. And only the second uh, purpose-built mosque in Britain itself. 
It is seen as the earliest community-built mosque in the UK, uh, with funds raised by the community in India and mostly by the Ahmadiyya Muslim women. And the construction was undertaken with the support of voluntary labour and uh, built to the design of the nationally re-owned firm of T.H. Uh, Mohsen and Sons. The Fuzzle Mosque is a fusion of the Indian Mughal architectural forms with contemporary uh, British stylistic trends. Um, so the foundation stone of this uh, lustrous landmark, it was laid by His Late Holiness, Hazrat Mirza uh, Bashiruddin Mahmood Ahmed. Uh, may Allah the Almighty be pleased with him, the promised reformer. And in light of uh, this week, uh, it is also the uh, promised reformer day. So we'll look into, we'll explain, you know, the the whole, you know, purpose of behind that as well. Because it was it was after the prayers of the promised Messiah. You know, he prayed for forty days in Husharpur for a sign from Allah the Almighty and uh, it was then Allah the Almighty had prophesied that you will be blessed with the sun and uh, you know Allah the Almighty revealed 52 qualities of of uh, this individual and we see how they were fulfilled in in his holiness as a Bashiruddin Mahmood and may Allah the Almighty be pleased with him uh, but Looking more on the historical aspect of the mosque itself, we do we are joined by our, our first guest. We are joined by Imam uh, Mujib Mirza, who is the missionary of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community UK, uh, and he is also the general secretary of Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamualaikum, and thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, thank you for having me. Assalamualaikum. Waalaikumsalam, warahmatullah. So, Imam Mujib, for the benefit of our listeners, can you please, uh, you know, discuss some of the history behind the Fuzzal Mosque itself? I mean, I've mentioned that uh, uh, it opened in 1926, but uh, tell us a bit more about this. Yeah, definitely. So, it opened on exactly 23rd of October 1926, and uh, back then it costed about £6,000 to be built. Uh, now the most interesting thing about this mosque is that uh, this the funding of this mosque came from the MD Muslim women of Adyan in Punjab, India, uh, British India back in the days. Um, the community was very young in terms of establishment and very meager resources they had, but uh, His Holiness, the second caliph of the community, had asked the, the ladies of the community to raise money for this project. And they gave everything, whether it was jewelry, whatever little they had, they gave for the cause of uh, this mosque. And this mosque was built. And uh, uh, literally, they, this was built on the donations of these Amni Muslim women, which were based in this remote village, uh, remote village in Kadiyan, Punjab, British India. And... Uh, yeah, that uh, that's that's how this came into being, and now it's a beautiful mosque. Uh, yeah, later on, further developments did take place, but that's how it all started. No, fantastic. Uh, it sounds very interesting, and uh, we know at that time the community itself 
was uh, you know it was very small and uh, the mission especially in the UK uh, it was at his initial stage at that time so what was the significance of building a mosque here in Great Britain uh, at that time well the thing is that as I said the community was very young and the second highlight his vision was to propagate the message of true Islam and this was meant to be a seed of Islam in the West, and this had a huge uh, meaning for him, uh, this first mosque in, in London. And at the same time, the community was growing, the first few missionaries were going to different countries, um, and very early on, a missionary was sent to UK, uh, and also this, this mosque had a very important role to play in the formation of Pakistan as well. So a lot of uh, importance from a historical point of view as well. And uh, uh, yeah, this, this was, in a way, the start of the revolution of Ahmadiyya in, in the West, I would say. Mm. Thank you for that. And uh, just one last question from my side, and I'll hand the mic over to Brother Walid. How has the building of Fazil Mosque itself, how has it impacted the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and also the wider community at large? Well, uh, the mosque is a beautiful landmark, as you say, and uh, a lot of people visit the mosque. Um, being, the mosque has been or blessed to home two different caliphs. The fourth caliph resided in that mosque for a very long period of time before his demise. The fifth caliph, before moving to Tilford, he was also there for a very long period of time. Uh, the, the third caliph has visited the mosque uh, several times. The second caliph had also come. So it had been the home of the caliphs for the community as well for a long period of time. And at the same time, it was a center of all the all the activity of the Ahmadiyya community in, in UK for a very long period of time until there were many other mosques that were built as well. But uh, in the early days, this was the hub for the community in London. But at the same time, even today, it acts as a, a magnet for externals as well to come and visit the community and learn about the community and whatnot. So uh, it serves educational purposes. People are intrigued because of its history. It's uh, elegant. So a lot of people do come and visit the mosque just for the beauty of the mosque as well. Uh, uh, Imam Majib. Um, tell me, you mentioned Pakistan. How, how was it involved? Can you elaborate upon that? How was it involved in the formation of Pakistan? Yeah, so a couple of meetings that took place. Uh, uh, Jinnah visited the mosque as well, and that's where the missionaries of the Pakistan, uh, the missionaries of the community, uh, had a couple of meetings with him uh, to 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 encourage him to go ahead with this formation of Pakistan uh, or definitely on the message of his holiness, the second caliph uh, that the missionaries should speak to Jinnah and conduct certain meetings and that's where the meetings took place. A lot of externals came as well mm -hmm. to these meetings as well. They're recorded in the history books uh, as something um, very important. So um, this, as I said, was not just the community's hub at the time, it was also the hub for the Muslims. Um, a lot of a lot of the Muslims that would come to the UK at that time, around about 1940s, 1930s, 
fifties, they would come to the mosque and uh, seek refuge, and they would they would feel at home because, as I said, uh, this was not just for the community, but it also served a much larger purpose, where other people were welcomed, and a lot of others still do come as well, and stay there and visit the mosque, and because it's very central. It's if you think about it, it's very close to maybe if the stations, the location itself is very uh, unique. It's in the, it's in the heart of Southfield, mm. very close to Wimbledon. So yeah, it, it it played many different roles, and as I said, it did have a lot to do with the history of Pakistan as well. Yes, certainly, certainly. I think that Jinnah uh, uh, at the time is supposed to have given up uh, uh, politics and was persuaded by. The Imam then, Malana Dharath, uh, very much influenced by His Holiness Zamirza Bashiruddin Mahmood Ahmed from Qadiyan to actually persuade Jinnah to, uh, to resume his, his position and go back and uh, fight for the uh, cause of the Muslims, which he was uh, able to do. Um, so th- that's certainly the case. Well, what about the influence uh, of the building on the local community? What do you think uh, the local community has uh, benefited? Well, uh, uh, we do need to understand the times that Mosul built was um, very different times to the times today. So at the time, uh, the Muslim community in the UK was very small. Uh, people were not used to the Muslims. They were not used to having different communities and whatnot. The, the country itself was not very diversified. But over the ages, over the years, We've seen that uh, the area is very diversified, and also uh, people are very welcoming of the community now. And at the same time, the, the mosque itself has played a massive role in helping the community. Whether it was COVID-19, it became the hub for vaccination. Whether it's the food banks and whatnot, so the mosque and the community around that mosque, the empty Muslim community likes to give back a lot, and that becomes basically a hub. A lot of uh, uh, interfaith programs take place in this mosque as well. So in a way, it's a, it's, it's a distraction from that point of view as well. A lot of people feel that this place is not just for the community of uh, the Amdi Muslim community, but rather it's, it's, a, it's a place for community as a whole. Other mm-hmm. people can also come. And events like peace conferences, uh, food bank donations, blood uh, donations, and especially in um, COVID-19, as I said, it became a, a great help and a great resource for the community. Do you think it's also a source of uh, promoting religious harmony? And if so, how? Yeah, definitely it is. It is. It's a huge... Uh, uh, I, I think all mosques of the Indian community is a source of uh, um, promoting that harmony because we, as a community, we fundamentally uh, teach that message of love for all hatred for none, and this is very visible with uh, with other mosques as well, and this can be seen with the various events. Just recently, there was a neighbor uh, neighbor's visit to the mosque that took place. A lot of people came, a lot of externals came to look at the mosque and visit the mosque and whatnot. Um, and we 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 tend to have a very welcoming approach to our mosques and other mosques itself. Uh, is the same as well in this case. So it does play a very integral role when it comes to uh, creating that harmony and peace in society, whether it's the Voices for Peace campaign, raising awareness for the crisis taking place in the Middle East, um, seeing how we as a community can help 
resolve the challenges of this age and whatnot. So, as I said, we are very current and very, very on top of uh, these things. No, great. Great stuff. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for uh, enlightening us about the uh, London Mosque. Uh, and I wish you all the best me. for the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, okay, what do we do now then? You're the boss. <laughs> Where do we go? Yes. Uh, so, as I was mentioning earlier, that uh, the 20th of February hmm. within the Amdiya Muslim Deed, the state, so it's a it's a very special day because this is where we remember the grand prophecy um, of uh, you know of the of the promised Messiah peace be upon him, uh, where he mentioned that you know he would uh, he would have a blessed son. Um, so just a little bit background about that, and you know we we see that. Uh, the, this was something which was prophesied within the Holy Quran as well. Um, we read in chapter three. We read in chapter sixty-two, verse three of the Holy Quran. Allah the Almighty says, "In the name of Allah, the Gracious, the Merciful, and He will raise him among others of them who have not yet joined them. He is the Mighty, the Wise." And this verse, it clearly indicates that in the future, other noble persons would be sent by God Almighty to bring mankind back towards his creator. That is why when this verse was revealed to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he was, he was sat amongst his companions. And when they heard this verse, one of the companions Hazrat Abu Hurairah, may Allah the Almighty be pleased with him, he repeatedly inquired from the Prophet as to whom the words who have not yet joined them referred to. And within the within the company of the Prophet, Hazrat Sulman, who was from Persia, he was also sat in the gathering. And when answering Abu Hurairah's question, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he placed his hand on Sulman's shoulder and said that if faith were to go up to the Pleiades, a man or men from among these would surely bring it back. So he said that the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, he would come from no other but then the lineage of of Hazrat Sulman, peace, uh, you know, may Allah the Almighty uh, be pleased with him. And we see that the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, his ancestors were of Persian descent and this is we see that this prophecy itself was referred to the promised Messiah peace be upon him and his progeny as well as we we know that the Holy Prophet peace be upon him referring to the promised Messiah in the latter days and his blessed progeny there is a beautiful um, narration of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him where he says that Yanzilu Isa ibn Maryam ila al-ardi yatazawwaju wa yuladu lahu uh, meaning that Hazrat Abdullah bin Amr, may Allah the Almighty be pleased with him, he narrates that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said that Jesus, son of Mary, he will descend on earth and he shall marry and have children. And we see that uh, in the life of the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, um, 
as i was mentioning earlier that he traveled to hosharpur which was a relatively small city in the northeastern punjab and there he spent 40 days in a room praying to and worshiping to his beloved god almighty and during the period of 40 days the promised messiah he received a great deal of direct communion with god almighty and thus it was on 20th of february 1886 he published a leaflet in which he stated that god almighty had informed him during his period of solitude that a child would be born to him who would assist greatly in the service of islam and the prophecy was lengthy and filled with 52 separate qualities that would be possessed by the child who would be known as hazrat muslim or the promised reformer and thereafter it was on the 12th of january 1889 that uh, the promised messiah peace be upon him hazrat mirza ghulam ahmed um he was blessed with a son uh, named mirza bashiruddin mahmud ahmed may allah the almighty be pleased with him and what's interesting is that the early uh, childhood of of the promised son is that he his health wasn't wasn't that good um he he was very weak and uh, he did not even have much secular knowledge um and he himself said that he didn't have his primary education uh, but we see that allah the almighty blessed uh, the promised son with excellent qualities and and his grace um and uh, you know just to mention some of his academic achievements uh, you know he wrote uh, tafsir sagheer himself um and uh, you know tafsir kabir and uh, he's written great commentaries of the holy quran itself but specifically in this segment we're looking at his travel towards london and we know that it was uh, in 9 it was in 1926 where he inaugurated the the um the fazl mosque um and uh, within this within his travel to the uk he traveled in uh, 1924 and and he chose the foreign country he chose uk as his first foreign country tour and he had been invited also in in 1924 to address the conference of R- living religion and this was to be held at wembley in september 1924 and thus along with the 12 of his companions uh, hazrat muslimaud may allah the almighty be pleased with him he traveled to london breaking his journey at damascus palestine and egypt and he also passed through italy and france and he, his arrival in the uk it was greeted with widespread media coverage and warmth from the general public and on the 23rd of september 1924 uh, choudhry uh, mohammad zafrullah he read out the uh, paper uh, of hazrat muslimaud uh, the the promised son which was later published as a book entitled Ahmadiyyat the true islam the paper was designed to highlight the true islamic teachings and the purpose of the advent of the prom- of the promised messiah and his lecture was grave- greatly received 
and again coverage was given in the media so just to give a little uh you know uh, as to what it had such a great impact on the on the on the locals that we find that even some snippets from uh, different newspapers uh, that wrote after the speech such as the Manchester Guardian it, they wrote that the sensation of the conference so far was an appearance this afternoon of a new sect of Islam which claims to have been founded 34 years ago by the messiah of the biblical and other prophecy and to have an ex- express divine command to lead mankind to God through Islam a white turbaned black bearded indian of a radiant pleasing con- countenance who described himself as his holiness the khalifate al masaya al haj the mirza bashiruddin mahmud ahmed or for short his holiness uh, khalifatul masi presented his bold claim in a paper entitled the ahmadiyya movement in islam and he did not read his paper himself but said a few sentences in excellent english he had he added a million followers all over the world and he was accompanied on the platform by a few supporters who wore green turbans and another who wore a red fez and he read his paper with excellent efficiency and the paper it must be added was followed with much more applause than any of its predecessors so um this is the impact it had on the audience um and uh, you know this is just one aspect of it uh the the religious conferences so but uh, i do believe we are joined by our next uh, guest who can uh, you know enlighten us more on this uh, particular subject assalamu alaikum imam raza how are you doing this morning assalamu alaikum good morning assalamu alaikum so we're looking at the uh life of hazrat uh, muslim uh you know we're looking at specifically the fazl mosque itself and you know how at that time it was uh, a beacon of light not only for the muslims but also for majority of the communities at large and that's what we wanted to specifically speak to you about that can you please begin by explaining to our listener that what does islam teaches to in treating different faiths um sorry you're going to have to <laughs> repeat in 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 doing what that ha- how does islam what's this uh, how does islam teach towards uh, treating uh, other other faiths oh okay sorry apologies for that Um I think for that we have to go back to the life of the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him what the Holy Quran has said about his mission basically so when um it says that we all God Almighty addresses him and says that we have sent you as a warner um and someone who is a bearer of glad tidings and he's been sent as a mercy for all of mankind um he's been sent as a role model for all of the people so that addresses his the universal character right he was a prophet for all of mankind not just for for the arabs and he was also a source of mercy for everyone 
and whoever came into contact with him saw that he felt that so it didn't matter if you were an arab or a non-arab it didn't matter if you were muslim or non-muslim and this is what he preached throughout his lifetime and and this is what he practiced as we know so there's so many incidences in the lifetime of the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him where he displayed absolute justice he um, we, we find that he never gave precedence to any Muslim over a non-Muslim just based on the fact that that person who came to him was a Muslim. So that we don't find any of that. He was you know, someone who um, always went the extra mile to be more courteous towards non-Muslims. So as I said, there's so many incidences, but due to the shortage of time, uh, I probably we have time to go through some of them. Um, for the 13 years that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, stayed in Mecca after claiming to be a prophet um, sent by God Almighty, the persecution, the opposition did not stop. Um, so much so that a lot of the members of the community at that early time, they lost their lives. And Keep this in mind, that now you are a persecuted community, people are out to get you, and it's not just verbal abuse. We're talking about physical abuse. We're talking about members losing their lives as well. And at that time, we find that after the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah, had migrated from Mecca, there was a severe drought that afflicted the city of, of Mecca. So... Um, and that severity of, of, of that drought was such and was so great that the Mexicans were forced to eat animals which had actually died because of the, the, the drought. And when they could not find any other means of survival, who do you think they came to? They went to Medina, they came to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, knowing his, quality, uh, his, his character, knowing the qualities that he stood for, being, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning, a mercy for mankind, being someone who's always compassionate, being someone who's always just. So the, the people of Mecca, they, they came and they besieged his help. And these were the very, very people that had persecuted him and his followers were now at his doorstep asking him for help. So instead, of course, I mean, he could have said, you know what, there's 13 years execution. Why should I help you? There's no reason for me to help you at all. But we know that this was not the character of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. So instead of pushing them away, he, he offered them monetary help and he also prayed for the end of, of, of that specific drought. And as a result of his prayers, the drought finished, but the Meccans, again, <laughs> this is the case with the with people, unfortunately, instead of being grateful once um, and, and, and keeping that favor of his in mind, they again continue the persecution of Muslims and it continues in that way. So there's so many other narrations as well when, for example, um, one of the chief of the hypocrites, he insulted the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. <clears throat> And his own son, I'm cutting the sh story very short, I'm cutting, uh, his own son came to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah, and said, that, uh, O Prophet of Allah, let me take care of my own father. I will, I will kill him myself. 
But the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said, no, I, I am not going to allow you this. Um, same thing, I mean, this is a very famous story, I'm sure you've mentioned this on, on, on here as well before. That there was an argument that ensued between a Muslim and a non-Muslim. And the non-Muslim said, I think, I believe it was a Jew. Um, he spoke about the superiority of uh, Prophet Moses, peace be upon him. And, of course, the Muslims said, no, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is, is greater than him. So that argument continued, and, and the Muslim, he he slapped the the, uh, the other person. So he gave him a nice smack. Now, this matter was brought in front of the Holy Prophet, um, and he could have said, well, yeah, you're right, I am the best prophet, I am, you know, the, the most beloved and whatnot. But just to to keep the sentiments of the other person in mind, he said, well, he reprim reprimanded the Muslim, actually. He said, well, I don't know. Don't say that. Don't offend people. I don't know if on the Day of Judgment I will be raised up first or Prophet Moses will be raised up first. That's in the hands of God Almighty completely. And lastly, I want to say that there's a narration of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, which he says that you cannot call yourself a believer. He didn't say Muslim, a believer, which is an overarching um, expression. You cannot call yourself a believer unless and until the people around you are safe from your tongue and from your hands. There's a reason why he mentioned the tongue first, because the words that we say, the, the, the hurt that we cause with our words, that is something that is you know, etched in our mind for the rest of our lives. So we need to be very, very careful in how we treat each other. No, absolutely. And that regardless of, 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 of a believer, of a Muslim or a non-Muslim, right? No, absolutely. Thank you for that, uh, Imam Raza. You've given a very detailed answer. And, uh, you know, spe- especially in this particular segment, we're looking at um, the, the Fazl Mosque, the London Mosque. And, you know, you mentioned these beautiful narrations of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him and and i remember the the incident where the uh, delegation of najran the christian delegation they came yeah. to meet the prophet himself and he very graciously he offered his own mosque and he said that well you know if you need to pray you can use use our mosque go go pray there now how is it that within the ahmadiyya muslim community even our mosques how how do they uh, you know how are they a means of religious harmony as well for the wider community. So this is something that across the globe, I believe, we, we are quite proud of that. I am actually quite proud of, of the fact that the community does this. You have uh, so many different events throughout the year. You have open door policy. You have events that celebrate the diversity of the community. And I mean, the the place that you're broadcasting from right now, the Batafu Mosque Complex, it's not just um, a place of worship for the members of the community. Every day, you can go in there at any time, any day of the year, you will find so many different things happening. You um, have the, the, you know, the facilities open for the local community, the non-Muslim or non-Ahmadi community. The council uses it regularly. Um, the college that is uh, nearby that uses it regularly. I know, for example, my mosque, uh, the the one that I am serving in, in in the South London area, we do the same thing. 
So you have interfaith events where you invite people of the community. You reach out to people during you know, festivities. For example, Eid is coming up now after the month of Ramadan. You go through the neighborhood, establish that relationship, and that's across the board. The reason why we do this, look, in in the world that we live in, there's so much division and hatred already, mm. okay? And I've noticed this because two weeks ago we had an interfaith event where we actually went to a church um, to, to, you know, it's, it's always difficult to, to invite people to a mosque who've never been, right? So what we do is we take the mosque to them, meaning the people who go to the mosque, me as a worshiper, as a Muslim, we go to the church, we talk to them, we invite them, we tell them what is it that we believe, who is it that we are, and how how do we behave, just to tell them that, look, we're Muslims, yes, but we're at the end of the day, we're citizens, and we're part of this country as well, and there's nothing that you have to be afraid of. And that opens up these doors and alleys and, and, and ways for us to communicate with other communities. And now we have this relationship with that community from that church, and they're more than willing to come to the mosque and, and, and see for themselves. So we have to play our part in this world of division, in this world of, of, of you know, us and them. A mosque is a, is a hub of, of unity. The, His Holiness, whenever he, Hazrat Mirza Masudam, the current successor to the Promised Messiah, uh, on whom be peace, anytime he goes and opens, inaugurates a mosque, he makes this very specifically clear that this mosque will never be a source of mischief. This mosque will always be a source of peace, of tranquility, of guidance, um, and, and, and of light for not just the local community, but for the wider community. And anything that we can do to, to, to play our part in educating, in removing misconceptions, we will do that. We've always been that, and, and, and we will continue to do that, inshallah. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that, uh, Imam Raza. And I think before we just let you go as well, if you can just very briefly explain uh, the significance of 20th uh, February within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community calendar as well. We are looking at the great works of the promised reformer, the promised son of the promised Messiah, Hazim Zawulam. So what is what is the significance of this particular day within the Ahmadiyya Muslim uh, community? Yeah, so I think one misconception that a lot of people might have is that it, this, is, this is not the birth of someone that we celebrate by no means and also it has nothing to do with a person it's the fact that on the 20th of February um, the promised Messiah the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community on whom be peace after 40 days of um, basically seclusion after 40 days of praying and seclusion God Almighty gave him a sign and if you this is basically a prophecy that we celebrate now, I've explained this last night, actually, to be honest, with, to someone. Mm. Who did this prophecy come from? This prophecy, we believe, a prophecy, to be honest, is given to a prophet, given to a, a close one of God, by God himself. Yeah. All right? Who is God? How do we understand the greatness, the magnitude of what or who God actually is. 
if you just look at the universe, the Holy Quran talks about the, the Big Bang, it talks about the expansion of the universe. So 13.8 billion years ago, something started. Billion. 13.8 billion years ago. That something is still ongoing up to this point. So much so that it is traveling, that is expanding. The universe is expanding at the speed of light. What's the speed of light? 186,000 miles per second. Not, not per hour, not per minute, mm. per second. Yeah. So it's something that is expanding at this speed, which was started 13.8 billion years ago. That are, these are dimensions that we cannot even comprehend. It's, for us, it's incomprehensible. So we cannot even imagine what, what magnitude the universe and how big it actually is. Now, behind all of this, we believe there is an act of God. That is the entity that, that prophesied, that revealed these words to the promised Messiah. So, of course, you have to celebrate it. It's, the, it's a glad tiding. God Almighty says that I confer upon thee a sign of my mercy. And then he talks about the prophecy, and then he talks about the qualities of that boy, that handsome boy that will, that will be bestowed on the promised Messiah. And, and actually, this goes back even further to the time of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Because yeah. when he, there was a prophecy that the Messiah will come, the Messiah will marry, the Messiah will have kids. So that, there's a direct link all the way back to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And this is the reason why we celebrate this prophecy. We celebrate the greatness of this prophecy. We celebrate the achievements of the promised reformer of Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmed, the second caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community, that we find that he completed, that he achieved, that he showed to the world in his 52 years of being the head, the caliph, the successor to the promised Messiah Great, thank you so much uh, Imam Raza for joining us this morning and uh, sharing your thought and your expertise on this subject, thank you Zakala, <laughs> 0208687787 that's the number to call if you do want to get in touch so, uh, over to you Okay, uh, right, I think that uh, we can bring this show to a close now with uh, uh, Words of uh, gratitude, uh, uh, well-deserved gratitude to those people who have been involved in the production of this program. Our producer, Faria Sohail Suhuri, is uh, deserving of our thanks. The lead producer, Nergis Nasser, researchers, Kudshia Ward, Hannah Safir, are also deserving of our thanks. Muhammad Shafiq, of course, because he made sure that as far as the uh, mechanical side of the uh, pr- uh, production was concerned that uh, that went s- uh, along smoothly and it did so thank you to him and then we mustn't forget uh, our uh, experts uh, there were a number that we were able to draw upon they included uh, uh, Professor Zachary Foster uh, he uh, joined us to give his opinion and share his thoughts on the Israel-Hamas conflict. And uh, we also were joined by uh, Human Rights Watch uh, legal advisor uh, Clive Baldwin, uh, who also came on to the program. 
and enlightened us about uh, this particular charity and what it does and what it is able to achieve. And then uh, we uh, heard a, a recording uh, also of uh, the exchange that we had with Dr. Zachary uh, Foster uh, also during that uh, slot between 7.30 and 8.15 where we were discussing that first topic of ours. The second topic uh, was about UK's uh, first mosque and uh, here we were accompanied by Imam Mujib Mirza um, who told us uh, a lot about uh, the uh, uh, the London Mosque, the first uh, mosque built in London, the Fuzzle Mosque. And then uh, we were joined uh, lately with uh, Imam Raza Ahmed, who expounded upon various aspects of the prophecy of uh, the uh, promised reformer and also about uh, various aspects of the um, Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and um, the uh, need for uh, tolerance and for compassion to all uh, as uh, illustrated by his conduct. So that was uh, the the program. Those were the people that uh, were able to assist us in furthering our understanding of the topics we were discussing. So thanks to them all. Thanks most of you to our listeners who were able to join us uh, during the course of this broadcast. So do join us again from 7 to 9 on the breakfast show between 7 to 9. Until then, it's alaikum from both Imam Tukir, Tanwi Khan and myself, Wadi Ahmad. Assalamu alaikum.